This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of August 29th, 2022, here are some top stories. While Arizona is being asked to cut back when Colorado River restrictions go into effect next year, some residents of the state are in danger of being cut off completely from their water supplies. Phil Latzman recently visited members of a small community north of the valley facing a crucial vote as soon as this week to determine their future source of water. The Rio Verde foothills is a hike, literally and figuratively. Winding through dirt roads and nestled between the mountains, it's about an hour northeast of downtown Phoenix. The nearest grocery store is a half hour away. Well, it's very different living up here, so we really moved out here to have some space, to have some acreage. That's Meredith DeAngelis. Acreage she has, but easy access to water she does not. We're on septic. We have hauled water, so a lot of people don't know what that means, but basically we've got an above-ground water tank. DeAngelis says that's caused her and her family to see water a lot differently. You know, when I lived in City of Scottsdale, I'd run my faucet and not really think about it, right? You're brushing your teeth, you leave it on. You're washing your hands, you leave it on. Um, when we moved out here, you know, being on hauled water, you are way more aware of your usage. The Rio Verde foothills is an unincorporated part of Maricopa County. About 500 of its residents buy their water from the city of Scottsdale. Some property owners, including John Jewis, have their own wells plunging a thousand feet down into the aquifer. That well, um, over the past 15 years or so, has slowly diminished to barely a trickle now. So now Jewis, too, has to rely on hauled water from Scottsdale. Jamie Phillips had no choice. He moved to the area two years ago to build a tiny home off the grid from an old shipping container. When I bought my property, I was basically reassured by the uh, real estate agent that hauled water has been around and is going to be around. But he and other residents soon found out that wasn't the case. Due to ongoing drought concerns, last year Scottsdale officially informed haulers they would no longer be able to take water outside the city's boundaries, effective the end of this year. The man who delivered them the bad news is also the man who delivers the water. And John Horniwer knew it was coming for years. So when I told people, look, this is something that's very likely coming down the pipe and we need to organize and create a solution, my biggest hurdle one was... Do we even Are we really even in a drought? It just rained last week. We can't possibly be in a drought. Hornerer, whose 6,000-gallon tanker truck brings the precious potable water to the neighborhood, says reality and a sense of urgency quickly kicked in. Hell yes, there's a panic. Um, we're on the front lines of the panic. As it, as it looms and gets closer, of course, now more people are opening their eyes going, oh my gosh, this is actually a real thing. Facing a complete cutoff, Foothills residents got together to discuss forming a Domestic Water Improvement District, or DWID. The DWID is just an option uh, provided by Arizona statute that allows communities to create a water solution for themselves. That's Karen Nabity. She's on the board for the proposed district. Did you know what a DWID was, say, maybe five years ago? Five years ago, I'd never even heard of one, to be honest. In fact, in 2018, I wasn't, at the beginning of 2018, I wasn't even aware all this was going on. And it's unfortunate that we're at this point and haven't secured it previously. We would have gotten it so much cheaper and the interest rates cheaper. Just in the last year, water costs have doubled. 
Despite the cost, fellow proposed WID board member Jennifer Simpson says it's the best option they have, but their proposal needs the approval of Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors. We have a 100% full plan. No other solution has been brought forth. It's time for them to approve it. All they have to do is say yes. But after nearly two years, Maricopa County supervisors have yet to call a vote. A small number of residents are opposed to the DWID, contending it will infringe upon their property rights. They're fearful. I understand the government overlay aspect of it. Once we're formed and we're approved, we will get into business and we will start delivering water. And until we actually start doing that and proving what we've been saying, those people won't believe it until they actually see it. County officials are also said to be considering a third-party company, such as EPCOR, to provide water to the community. The Board of Supervisors is meeting today to hear public comment on the DWID from residents. But a spokesman for Thomas Galvin, who represents their district, says no vote is currently scheduled. Approximately 500 residents in the Rio Verde foothills face a cutoff in just four months. In the Rio Verde foothills, Phil Latzman, KJZZ News. In business news. During the first nine months of the fiscal year, the National Labor Relations Board saw efforts to unionize spike nearly 60 percent. In Arizona, they increased more than 50 percent. From our business desk, Christina Estes talks to people contributing to the local numbers. The park itself has three main uh, habitat regions. Corey Lykopoulos had just started as an education coordinator at the National Audubon Society's Nature Center in Phoenix when COVID hit, followed by two rounds of layoffs at several Audubon locations. We were one of the few places that did not receive any layoffs. He had no problems then or now with his managers at the Nina Mason Polium Rio Salado Audubon Center, but others across the nonprofit's network did. So I just want to make sure that people are treated fairly and then, you know, they're being respected by their organization. Compensation's an issue, too. I get disability through the VA. I'm also a veteran. Um, I served in the Army um, in the infantry for three years. I'm able to only work at Audubon because I have that disability through the VA. If I didn't, I would have to, I would have, to have a second job. Lycopolis was among 11 employees at Audubon Southwest Regional Office who unanimously voted to join the Communications Workers of America. So did 100 more Audubon employees across 10 other regions. It really is a rethinking of the workplace and what workers deserve. Michael Selmy is a law professor at ASU. It's very exciting, it's very interesting, but it's really still on a very small scale. Lately, Starbucks employees have gained attention. In Arizona, at least five stores have voted to unionize this year. Nationally, it's more than 200. Starbucks owns about 9,000 U.S. stores. Going after a large employer and trying to get a broader group of employees in the bargaining unit would give us a better sign of the uh, whether this is a real movement or whether this is kind of just uh, a movement among young people in small workplaces that's getting a lot of attention. Over the past year, employees at 34 Arizona companies have filed petitions for representation. They include waste disposal companies, Republic Services and Waste Management, ACLU of Arizona, Lockheed Martin, along with 13 Starbucks stores and marijuana dispensaries. In Florence, maintenance workers at a privately run prison voted to join UA Local 469, which represents pipefitters, plumbers, and technicians. Chad Jesse is the union's lead organizer. The company will match um, up to 5% what what these workers will put into their 401k. And because the um, wages are so low and the health insurance 
is so costly. None of them can put any money into a 401k to even get a match. So they, they have no they have no chance of retiring with any kind of dignity. For two weeks in August, members went on strike. They returned to work after getting what Jesse called a moderate wage increase and management's commitment to form a joint committee to address working conditions and safety issues. One of the goals of unions is not just to raise uh, wages, but also to share management responsibilities. Selmy says decades ago, many companies, especially automakers, didn't mind unions because they got productive workers and less turnover. One of the problems that sort of started to develop in that industry was when some of the companies moved to southern states where there weren't unions and some of the uh, northern, you know, the Ohio, Michigan companies felt that they were at a competitive disadvantage because of the unionization. While various factors can affect salaries, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says median earnings of union members are nearly $200 per week higher than non-union members. Chad Jesse says his members' average compensation, that's wages and benefits, is almost $60 an hour. They pay $27 in monthly dues. Over the next five to seven years, Jesse's union wants to double Arizona membership to 8,000. We go to job sites, uh, we, we go to contractors, we talk to workers that are driving trucks at the gas station, wherever we find them, and, uh, you know, just try to spread our information out there. More than 5% of Arizona workers are union members, about half the national rate. A Gallup poll last year found close to 70% of Americans support unions. But approving of unions is different from forming one. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of energy. Corey Lycopoulos says the organizing process created camaraderie. So when you just get to know people, you can do your job, I feel like, better. And when you have these relationships and you trust each other. That makes employees more likely to stay, he says, and develop their institutional knowledge. At last count, there were four beavers that caused this section of the Salt River home. Benefiting not only the National Audubon Society, but guests of the Rio Salado Audubon Center. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news. Arizona's COVID-19 outbreak continues to show signs of improvement, according to the latest update from the state health department. And the state could soon begin offering updated booster vaccines to protect against a potential winter surge. Catherine Davis-Young reports. The Arizona Department of Health Services is reporting about the same number of COVID cases this week as it did last week, but the department's Eugene LaVar says test positivity rates and hospital utilization numbers continue to fall. Things seem to be trending in the appropriate direction. But federal health officials anticipate more infections this winter, so the FDA just authorized reformulated vaccines that will target the Omicron strain of the virus. The new shots still need a final okay from the CDC, but LeVar says Arizona already has about 35,000 doses on order. Our expectation is that vaccines will arrive early next week. Most Arizonans over the age of 12 who were fully vaccinated or boosted at least two months ago would likely be eligible for the new boosters, depending on what the CDC recommends. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. A local artist is exploring her own career in a retrospective exhibit. Here's the show co-host, Steve Goldstein. Throughout the generations and centuries of art on this planet, self-portraits have been some of the most all-encompassing when it comes to understanding a painter and her style, and how she feels about herself at specific times of life. Few have expressed it in as personal a way as Beverly McKeever, who presents herself at various stages in clown makeup, feeling depressed, and in an interracial relationship. 
The work of the former ASU professor now at Duke has been on display across the country for nearly a quarter century. Currently at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Arts, or SMOCA, is a retrospective of McEver's career so far. It's called Full Circle. I recently visited the exhibit and was given a tour by McEver and her longtime friend Kim Bogany, who's the director of Scottsdale Public Art and the curator of this show. Bogany began by explaining why the exhibition was at SMOCA. So I was working here at, it was known at that time as Scottsdale Arts, uh, as a registrar, and our curator at the time did something that was called uh, New Directions, which was about showcasing emerging artists. This was about 1998-1999. Beverly McGeever was one of them. So her work had come into the space. It wasn't even here in the museum. It was at the Center for the Arts building next door. And it was Eureka because Beverly McGeever, black woman, I am a black woman, and it was an immediate friendship because of the fact that it was a very rare thing to see in Scottsdale, two black women who are creative, right? Um, So it was an amazing exhibition. It was her first solo exhibition here. So her work was very provocative at that time um, because they were largely about her in self-portrait, dressed up in different scenarios with clown makeup on. Folks were mistakenly thinking it was blackface, but it was actually clown makeup. Fast forward, she has had an amazing career over those 20 plus years. I talked with the staff here at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art and said, I think it's time for us to do a retrospective of her work since she has taken the world by storm. Uh, And so let's bring it back. And that's why it's titled Full Circle. Beverly, were you okay with doing a retrospective or did it make you nervous? Were you someone who wanted to look back? Do you actively look back at your own work? When you have galleries that are set up that start at the very, very beginning of your career all the way to the current, it's really overwhelming, (laughs) to say the least. It's scary because this is my story and here it is uh, up in the galleries here uh, for everybody to see. And, you know, the beautiful thing is, I must say, I get a lot of... um, texts or emails or Instagram comments from people who've come to see the show and how they relate. And they say, I know how you feel, depression paintings. Oh, I I love the Dear God series. You know, I talk to God too. Uh, So it's really been quite wonderful, the response and, you know, my personal story reflecting and being universal. Obviously, all art is personal in some way, but this is about as personal as it gets. Each of these paintings, and Beverly knows me, they're like my children too. And I would just be like, here goes another family member. Can we include this family member in the exhibition? And sometimes we just had to say no. I mean, you originally, she selected over 100 pieces. And, you know, she brought it back. And they were like, we we don't have that kind of space. (laughs) What are you thinking? (laughs) How much of your art and its evolution, or as it's changed over the years, had to do with the dynamics, the split dynamics between North Carolina and Arizona? Oh, man, that, that's a good question. I tell you, this front gallery here, where I am really in blackface and holding white dolls and specifically loving in black and white, is when I first moved to Arizona. And I was like, come on, get me a husband. You know, and I started looking around, there were like no black men anywhere. And so I was like, well, wait a minute, what, what does it mean 
what does it feel like? I was looking at white men and thinking, is he cute? Am I thinking, oh, baby, baby, like I would a black man? And basically, I did this whole series of work uh, based on like what it was to love someone that was different. Uh, and I didn't get married, of course. Well, it's just, she's married to her career, right? That's really what she's trying to say. So, you know, the love has been there. You have loved from afar, but your, your focus has always been on your career. She's right. <laughs> and then in North Carolina, you know, I basically took the blackface off and worked on pay make paintings of my sister and family members, which you see in the uh, later galleries. Uh, so, and you can tell, I mean, the coloring for Arizona, like the blue sky that are, are serve as backgrounds for many of the paintings or the uh, orangey brown that is so deserty. Uh, the palette changed also uh, from being in Arizona to being in North Carolina where it's green and luscious, you know, and claustrophobic if you're used to seeing sky to earth uh, in Arizona. Location, place has a definite impact on what it is I paint and what it is I'm talking about. When you mentioned taking off the blackface, what was that process like as an artist and personally in some way, because obviously what happens in your life affects your art? You know, it was interesting because originally my sister Renee, who's mentally disabled, She's, she's currently like 62 years old, uh, and I'm her legal guardian. She had to move out here because my mother died, and Renee moved out to Arizona, too. And I was like, God, we like two black peas in a pod. And I tried to get her to put the black face on. Uh, so Renee is 62, but she has the mindset of a third grader. And I'll never forget, she looked me dead in the eye and said, well, it looks really good on you, but it'll, it'll look stupid on me. Like, so I don't want to do that right? <laughs> so, uh, so part of that, uh, you know, is about, if she had put blackface on with me, there would be a whole series of paintings of me and her, there, of, with both of us on blackface. As it turns out, there's a painting of me in blackface, and she's just sitting uh, without any mask whatsoever. And then as you move back to North Carolina, where, you know, was in Durham was 40% black people. Um, and there is not only poor black people, but there's a middle class, upper middle class community in Durham also, which is something that was more difficult, challenging to find uh, here in Scottsdale. So, so it changed, everything changed. And because I felt more authentic without the blackface. Can we talk about the blackface? You keep saying blackface, and I want to keep coming back to clown makeup because people hear blackface, and it's rife with all kinds of negative connotations. And I need to flip the script on that because it's about you as a young girl in high school trying out for the clown club, Ringling Brothers, not getting in, but loving how that makeup felt on your face so that you could express well, who you wanted to be in very difficult, very difficult circumstances. I mean, being poor, right? Single mother raising the three of you, living in the projects in Greensboro. That clown makeup allowed you to express yourself and truly be authentic. So I want to get away from black face because it means something else when you say that. 
this clown makeup became your liberation, right? right. Your freedom. Yes, and in, in, in North Carolina, I was white face because I went to a predominantly white high school and everybody was white, so they were like, you know, you gotta be white too. So I covered up all my skin, you know, and was white for many years. And then I saw a dance performance at Duke University um, and there was a white woman dressed in blackface dancing. And I was like, oh my God, I, I could be black? I could be a black clown? And so the next day I went straight to the Halloween store <laughs> and got a new outfit, makeup, and became black. So that was definitely a liberation. So is there a reverse liberation then later in your career? Yes, yes, yes. Where I, I've learned as a grown-up that I don't have to hide behind a mask. I don't have to, to be accepted or any of those kind of things. I can just be me. So um, as Beverly was removing the makeup and really doing these paintings that were about self-exploration, one series she did in particular was called the Depression Series. It was a series that she did when she was doing a residency at Yaddo. And uh, she always would send me pictures of what she's doing. What do you think? What do you think? So she sent me pictures of these and I was just deeply horrified because I was like, oh my God, these are great exercises. Don't let anybody see these in the public because they were so raw. And that was me and my fear that was really speaking up because they are highly emotional. They capture how hard it is to be suffering through depression, right? And one of them actually ended up winning an award with the National Portrait Gallery. I mean, they are that stunning. So it's one of those rare times I stand corrected uh, because I think the series speaks to everyone. I have seen people standing in this space crying because these speak so beautifully to them. Do you know when you're doing this how accessible this sort of work can be? And by accessible, I mean, when you're in your studio or in your space, are you thinking about how this is going to affect other people who see it or just what you were feeling at the time? Well, I, I will say uh, I listen completely. I surrender to my intuition. And whatever comes up comes out. So not only do I not have, I'm not even thinking about anyone, viewers, or if I can sell it, uh, or any of those kind of things. I'm just following my, my inner voice that's saying, this is, you need to paint this. You need to do this. And even when I'm in the process of making the paintings, uh, my inner voice will say, oh, I need some, you need to put some blue right there. You need to do this. Or, and I can literally hear the paintings breathing, the image of whoever it is breathing and talking to me and saying, you're not finished yet. And a lot of times I would be like, oh, can't I just paint some flowers? Even my gallery dealer will say, can't you make some happy paintings? And I said, these are happy paintings. What are you talking about? Well, there are flowers in your dress, so that's something, right? That's right. <laughs> are you compelled to just do it constantly? Can you ever give yourself a break? Totally married to my art. Yeah. Yeah. So this space is a little different from what you typically would see with a retrospective. We 
Beverly specifically very much wanted to consider how we can also honor those who have helped her. I mean, her undergraduate, graduate studies were not easy. As a black woman trying to paint, she came up against a lot, but she had a number of fantastic mentors. Um, and so she in turn, as a professor herself, is now paying it forward with the students that she mentors. Several of the students are from Arizona State because I taught here for 12 years. I just want to, you know, I don't want to be the only one at the table. I be totally believe in reaching back and bringing students, women, people of color with me. And this was a great opportunity for you know, me to say, because it's part of my legacy. I mean, it was a great opportunity for me to say, I'm so proud of you guys for being artists and poor and struggling <laughs> and all the things that artists are and making, making that commitment and that, you know, I had a hand in, doing, in you doing that. So, yeah, so this all student work. You know, when I met them, they were 20 and I was like 40. And then when they came back for the opening here, they were 40. And I was like, what happened? Oh my God, what happened? You all grew up. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was, you know, they're, they're like my children. Artist Beverly McGeever and Kim Bogany, director of Scottsdale Public Art, giving me a tour of Full Circle, which closes September 4th at Smoka. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras News. In recent years, Sonora's capital of Hermosillo has dealt with serious water supply issues. From our Fronteras desk in that city, Murphy Woodhouse reports on what officials say may be a respite. For two summers in a row, Hermosillo, Sonora's largest city, came close to losing access to one of its key water supplies, the El Novio Reservoir. Its levels dropped so low that the pumps drawing from it nearly couldn't operate. But Hermosillo's mayor, Antonio Astiazaran, says that a recent week of epic rainfall has changed the situation, at least for now. He says the water now stored in two nearby reservoirs assures the city's supply through next year. Some had raised concerns about heavy metal contamination in the Molinito Reservoir 20 miles northeast of the city. But Astiazaran said proper treatment will ensure the water is safe. Murphy Woodhouse, KJZZ News, Hermosillo. In education news, nearly 6,500 Arizona families have applied for school vouchers under an expansion of the controversial education program. Greg Hani has more. The program once catered mostly to special education students and helps pay for private school tuition or other education expenses. But a bill signed into law this year by Governor Doug Ducey provides universal access to the $7,000 vouchers called Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. According to the Arizona Department of Education, approximately 75% of those who applied under the universal category had no prior record of public school enrollment. Voucher expansion is set to take effect on September 24th. But public school advocates are collecting signatures to refer the law to the ballot and let voters decide if they want to keep the universal expansion. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part from a grant from the Katina Foundation. Sage is being poached in massive quantities from native land. Here's Lauren Gilger with a look at why. 
Sage is having a moment. You can find bundles of it for sale everywhere from Whole Foods to Amazon, Walmart to small boutiques. It's become popular to use it to smudge your home, a cleansing practice taken from Native American communities that have used it in religious practices for millennia. But now, as Sage has ballooned in popularity, journalists and activists are uncovering a dirty truth about the sacred desert plant. It's being poached in massive quantities. Deborah Kroll covers indigenous affairs for the Arizona Republic and dove deep into the story in recent months, and I spoke with her more about it. California white sage has been in use by Southern California and Baja California native peoples for millennia. It's got that wonderful, pungent, sagey smell. A lot of tribes use it when they when they pray. So it's definitely used for religious purposes. It's got medicinal purposes also. It can be used uh, as a tea for sinus problems. It's got some antiseptic benefits. So when you smudge your house, you're also getting rid of bad odors and any kind of thing that's hanging around in the air. Those are just some of the uses. But because we call it the the wellness community, Mm -hmm. the wellness Mm -hmm. movement has learned about SAGE, they have become very excited about it, and they have created a worldwide craze for SAGE. And there's literally more demand for SAGE than can be met by the couple little commercial farms that are growing it in San Diego County and a couple of little farms in Oregon. Yeah. So People have turned to poaching it. Hmm. Right. So you you learned about this. You were at a conference of indigenous peoples talking about climate change issues, and someone brought up sage poaching. Had you ever heard of this before? I have heard of it before. I've become very, very conscious and, and thoughtful where I go to get sage. Hmm. I've been trying to grow my own. I haven't had too much success, but... Mostly I depend on people who give me sage out of their yards now. Interesting. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what this poaching process looks like. It's it's being essentially stolen from native lands, state lands, things like that? Yeah, it's being stolen from native lands in primarily in Baja, California. There's also been some theft from tribal lands in, in California. The bulk of it is being taken from public lands. Hmm. Ground Zero is in North Etiwanda Preserve in western San Bernardino County, where once these stands grew four, five, even six feet tall, you're lucky if you see any that are two or three feet tall because the poachers are just taking everything. They're also taking the flowers, which bee, you know, native bees and other pollinators depend on for food in Southern California. Mm-hmm. They're also taking seeds to make into essential oils and salves, which means that the sage can't propagate itself. And in some cases, they're cutting it right down to the ground, which means it'll never grow back. Wow. So, I mean, who's in charge of this? Who's behind it? Has anyone been prosecuted? There was one, one big bust made last year. And the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department is working with California Department of Fish and Wildlife to try to figure out if they can work their way up to the 
to the head of what they're calling a white sage cartel. Wow. Which is an organized, you know, it's just one of several organized rings of people who hire mainly undocumented people looking for some money and opportunity. You know, they hire them. They they go out. They're filling up 55-pound duffel bags full of it. Wow. And they'll make like maybe 30 bucks. And each little tiny sage stick goes for up to $10. Hmm. So that 55 pounds of, of gathered sage in a duffel bag makes an awful lot of smudge sticks. And we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars in retail value. Wow. So, I mean, this has become a big business as you're getting at here. But where does this end up? Like, do people know who buy it, that they are buying, you know, poached sage? No, because they'll go to a powwow. They'll go to a New Age store. They'll go to Walmart or Ross or Amazon, and they say, oh, yeah, it's sustainably harvested, mm-hmm. and so that th- they think it's okay. But the people who made the new documentary, Saging the World, are estimating that anywhere north of 90% of all the sage you see for sale throughout California and the Southwest is poached. Wow. So you talked a little bit about some of the ecological results of that, whether it be for honeybees or, or whatever else, you know, affects the environment there. But what about what Native peoples are saying about this? Because as you say, this is something that is, you know, used in religious ceremonies for them. They need it. Some of the people, including the the Ejidos or the traditional tribal lands in Baja, California, are saying it's nothing less than cultural genocide. Because if the sage doesn't grow, they don't have any way to offer prayers. And if they don't have any way to offer prayers, they can't continue their their religious practices and their culture kind of withers up. In Southern California, some tribes also use the sage for religious purposes, while other tribes like like the the Kauia, the various Kauia bands use it as a medicinal herb and use it for house cleansing and for some other purposes. So it's important to them, but it's not central to their cultural practices like it is with, with the Kumeyaay and the Kukupa and some of the other tribes closer to the border. Mm-hmm. So on top of all of this, is burning sage or smudging your house or kind of tapping into this new agey trend, which is way beyond that now, I mean, is this cultural appropriation? Definitely. It's definitely cultural appropriation. And the ironic thing is that everyone I talked to said that they would be happy to help people learn and to become more aware of what they're doing when they're smudging their house and how to gather or how to grow it in their yard, how to be more mindful of where they're obtaining their sage from if Mm. they just ask. So they're willing to share this tradition, but maybe in a better way. Yes, definitely in a better way. All right. Deborah Kroll covers Indigenous Affairs for the Arizona Republic. Joining us, Deb, thanks as always. Thank you. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.